0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program. The club is now an all-virtual organization, and you can see all of the club's great offerings at www.commonwealthclub.org. My name is Amy Gallo. I'm a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review and the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. I am pleased to be the moderator for today's program on mental health in the workplace. This event has been developed in partnership with MindShare Partners, a national nonprofit that is changing the culture of workplace mental health so that both employees and organizations can thrive. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's mental health series, dedicated in memory of Nancy Friend Pritzker with support from the John Pritzker Family Fund. There could be no better time to have this conversation. Over the past few months, our work lives have been disrupted, first by a global pandemic that closed many offices and forced many people to work entirely remotely. Some employees are now returning to transformed and redesigned workplaces for the first time in months, and others are staying remote for the foreseeable future. Also, organizations of all sizes are now seeking new ways to discuss and take action on racial injustice and systemic racism, not only at work, but throughout society. Needless to say, this is a challenging time for workplace culture. With me today to discuss these important issues and their impact on mental health at work are several experts in the field. Let me introduce them and then we'll jump into the program. First, we have Kelly Greenwood, who is the founder and CEO of Mindshare Partners, which provides workplace mental health training and strategic advising to leading companies. They also host communities to to support employee resource groups and professionals, and they build public awareness. Mindshare is a partner on today's program. Guru Gorepin is the CEO of Verizon Media a powerhouse of trusted media and technology brands. We also have Deborah Olson, who is the Principal Benefits Manager at Genentech, a major biotech firm in the Bay Area. And finally, we have Ruth C. White, a Clinical Associate Professor in the Suzanne Dwarak-Peck School of Social Work at the University of Southern California and a thought leader, change catalyst, and advocate in stress management, mental health, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Before jumping in, a quick housekeeping note, questions can be submitted to me or any of the panelists via the YouTube chat feature. Please post your questions there throughout the program, and they'll be forwarded to me. I will get to as many of them as possible. Okay, let's jump in. So Kelly, I want to start with you. This is a challenging time for anyone dealing with mental health issues and yet more and more people are talking about mental health right now, and many leaders are being more authentic and open about their own mental health struggles. Do you feel like the shifts that we're seeing now will be positive in the long run for improving mental health at work?
2: Thanks so much, Amy. Yes, our hope at Mindshare Partners is absolutely that a silver lining of the pandemic is that it's normalizing what it looks like to have a mental health challenge in the workplace. Almost everyone has been dealing with some level of discomfort these last few months. In fact, a study of global employees that we did with Qualtrics and SAP at the end of March and early April found that the mental health of almost 42% of respondents had declined since the outbreak began. So given that many of us have been working remotely, it's clearly impossible to hide your day-to-day realities and personal life anymore, even if you'd like to. So Uncertainty clearly increases anxiety across the board, whether you've had a pre-existing mental health condition or not, which uh, up to 80% of Americans over the course of their lifetimes will. And so that vulnerability that you're talking about, especially from people in positions of power, goes a huge way toward reducing stigma, whether sharing this, a story is explicitly about a mental health challenge or simply the struggle of, of having a cranky kiddo at ha- in the home. So this type of normalizing is really critical, particularly in the work environment, and opens the door for others to share if they feel that that would be helpful. So we really do hope that this continues post-pandemic, since so many walls have now already been broken down.
1: Yeah, that's great. I think that's a, a really nice, hopeful place to start, to think that this there is maybe perhaps a silver lining of this pandemic and a lot of the issues that are are going on right now, that this would be... Um, positive for mental health. I know each of you is personally passionate about this topic, even if mental health isn't part of your job description. Um, Ruth, can you tell us how you got involved in this work, especially since you you were a researcher, but this is not your main area of research. Is that right?
3: Yes. So I actually came to this work through my own experiences with bipolar disorder in the workplace. And so um, I wanted to just kind of like, that was just going to be part of my life that nobody really knew about um, because, you know, we don't, we don't you know, we talk about bringing our whole selves to work, but we don't always. And, um, but then realizing that advocacy was really important because I came up against several barriers. For example, um, there wasn't mental health parity, which means that health insurance companies had a cap on the number of sessions I could have um, which they didn't have if they ha- if you had diabetes, for example. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that I was coming from Canada and I got a bill from my psychiatrist, well from the office, and I called the insurance company and I said, "What is this bill for?" I, you know, I'm going to mental health sessions, and they said we have a cap, and so I started working um, on the issue of why is it that you only got a limited number of mental health um, uh, services. Versus other kinds of health services. And so, and I spent some time in a mental health facility for a week. And so just dealing with the fallout of a lot of that got me into a space of advocacy, which then got me into a space of writing. And then from that, um, growing my own expertise and having organizations come to me for speaking, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Guru, I want to ask you about your connection to this issue as well. Obviously, the CEO job description rarely includes the words mental health. Um, Why has this become such an issue that you care about so much at Verizon Media?
0: Thank you, uh, first of all, Amy, for uh, having me here. And and, uh, it's it's a very important topic for us. I always think, you know, if you step back, uh, mental health, you know, think about us as humans, right? I always say about mental health being the foundation for who we are and how we set it starts with your personal journey so of course for me personally I you know it's affected me in many ways and friends and family that I know and I always think about building that and when you think about your personal journey and fixing that then you say employees are a very important pillar of their journey and taking care of that that's why I always say look taking care of mental health is actually good for the business Uh, so it's not just important you as a person uh, helping you get through the the process, but also it impacts the business in a really good way. So I would say it's got the whole pillar of, we talk about four stakeholders, employees, customers, society, and shareholders in that journey. Employees are a very important foundation of it. If you don't take care of that, and I think mental health is even bigger uh, input for that. If you don't take care of that, then you don't get the output that you're driving as a company and as a society.
1: Mm. And Deborah, do you remember when you started first talking about mental health at Genentech was it was it a topic of conversation or you know how did it come up or how was mm-hmm. it first started talking about
4: it sure absolutely thanks amy so really i think it dates back to the summer of 2018 i was approached by an eap vendor who was asking questions that i couldn't answer And so we ended up changing vendors in the fall of 2018. And through that transition, really wanted to imagine what mental health should be like across Genentech and Roche and and wanting EAP to be your go-to when you are going through difficult times and, and you're not able to thrive. And instead of focusing on times when you're struggling or suffering, we changed it to more along the lines of going through a transition whether you're getting married or divorced, having a child, um, changing jobs, moving houses, um, your child is moving back in with you or moving out or going to college. Any of these you know, day-to-day transitions would be a great opportunity to partner with your EAP to help you to get through that and to help you to thrive. And really what we saw was with that transition, in the first six months, utilization increased by over 900%. And we've of course seen that increase um, throughout the last year and a half, and and especially through COVID. Um, And it certainly helped that we changed from five to 25 sessions per person per calendar year, because we found that they're really once you start partnering with EAP, once you get to that fifth session, there's an opportunity and really a need to go beyond that. And we wanted to ensure that employees saw them as their partner going forward. So.
1: Yeah. I have to say I find that I've, I find that percentage increase um, and and the story about what Genentech has done with the Eap is so encouraging because I think most people think of Eap as you know a sort of last resort place you call when you when you're in a crisis um, and i've also just heard lots of stories about people not finding their Eap to be that helpful. Can you talk a little bit about What the partner you you um, you know uh, um, signed up with, and why that was so such a difference from what past EAPs have had done for you all?
4: Absolutely, I'm not quite sure if I can share the name. Um,
1: Okay, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Just, just tell us about why they're so different.
4: They they are fabulous because you know what I think employees are so used to just getting that yellow pages list and calling around, and what this EAP offers is a platform where within a few clicks and literally two minutes, you are able to um, connect with a clinical psychologist. And many even offer scheduling online. So, really, within two to three minutes, I can find a psychologist or even a coach that I want to partner with, schedule within the next 24 hours or whenever my schedule allows, um, and slot myself in because we know that. I mean, sometimes it takes me six months to get up the courage. To reach out to my EAP. So when I do reach out, I want that immediate access. I don't want to have to call around when I'm at a really vulnerable point in my life. So it's, they've been a great partner um, and they have really helped us shift the way we look at mental health.
1: Yeah. Kelly, what do you see with companies um, in terms of the EAP, this sort of role that plays in providing uh, mental health services to employees?
2: Absolutely. I think um, the provider that uh, Deborah is speaking to is very unique um, in sort of its wraparound, um, very comprehensive services, which is, I think, a fantastic next-gen model for an EAP. Um, But unfortunately, we absolutely see EAPs as necessary, but often insufficient. Um, We do um, sort of the traditional um, EAPs are often a Band-Aid solution, Um, you know, not necessarily someone that you're going to be seeing on an ongoing basis um, and can be very difficult to navigate from the employee perspective. So um, I think that uh, sort of thinking in a more innovative way, uh, you know, as Genentech's partner is doing is really critical to um, making that even more effective as the first stop that someone would go down in their mental health journey.
1: Yeah, and just a reminder for viewers: if you have any questions for me or for any of our panelists, please feel free to drop those in um, the chat. Those will be forwarded. We'll try to answer as many of those as possible. Um, so, Deborah, your EAP was an, is a good example of a some program you had in place that's gotten that's really helped your employees through this current crisis. Um, I'm curious: are there other things, that innovations that you had in place before um, March, before things? Uh, really, um, you know, changed for everyone that you feel like have been really beneficial for Genentech and for your employees?
4: Absolutely. So last May for Mental Health Awareness Month, we had um, a campaign and we gave out t-shirts that had the letters, are you okay across them? And throughout the entire month of May, we wore them and it was so successful that for every Wednesday going forward, We have thousands of employees across the company that are still wearing them. So now that we're virtual, you can see them on camera. But when we were on campus, you would see someone walking towards you wearing the T-shirt and you would feel that, you know, I am not alone. We are in this together. And beyond that, we developed a group of mental health champions and and actually partnered very closely with um, Kelly's company, Mindshare Partners, and train the mental health champions because we wanted them to provide a safe space. So if any employees were reaching out to them, asking about mental health resources, asking about support, or just needing a shoulder, we wanted to make sure the mental health champions were fully trained and ready to take that on. And that, again, was a, a great support that we had set up before COVID.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How about you at, at Verizon media? what what innovations had you done prior to the pandemic that you feel like have really helped you all navigate this crisis?
0: You know there are a few things you know one uh, one of the things as a foundation we set up, I would say almost for many years and we amplified that was uh, neurodiversity ERG, which is the employee resource group. and we have many employee resource group, but the biggest thing is we empowered them. And the whole idea about empowering all minds in the workplace to a lot of awareness, education and a network of support. I've attended uh, the sessions there. It's really the idea around removing stigma and being open about it and, and providing, you know, building on top of it. We provide weekly toolkits to employee managers and also mental health is covered frequently on a weekly basis there. And then uh, when I look back again, we provided premium access to guided meditation apps and we've had an employee storytelling series in which employees could share their stories, experiences to inspire others to also share and open up and also share what works and what doesn't. Uh, uh, Similar to what Deborah was just saying, we do uh, provide uh, like 24 by 7 free and confidential uh, crisis and counseling support, as well as the psychiatry services and emotional wellness support for all employees and families. The other thing I would say, I mean, Kelly's company, we've, of course, Kelly has trained, uh, come and did a session with me and my leadership team. This is well before COVID happened. Uh, That's why I go back. This is a journey. You have to set the foundation and we are still in the beginning phases of it.
1: Yeah. Ruth, we got a question from a viewer I want to direct to you because I know you consult to lots of different companies. The the viewer wants to know what concerns we are hearing from employees right now. Um, And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that
3: so this has been interesting for me because in the last well beginning in early march i reached out to Cron Four, which is a local um, tv station here in the bay area and um, have appeared many times to talk about mental health issues because um kaiser following foundation was the first to start tracking this only because they were doing some other work before and then they realized early march they started every two weeks looking at mental health and the impact COVID-19 was having on the mental health of individuals in the United States. It's a small sample, but um, very significant impact was measured early on. Um, the CDC has also come out with, um, and sorry, not the CDC, the census was monitoring mental health as well, and they showed, um, especially around um, racial trauma, the impact um, on mental health of African Americans. So, but I had several companies and organizations from really tiny nonprofits to big tech firms in Silicon Valley reach out to have me do um, stress management workshops for them Um, during COVID-19. What I'm finding now, which is very interesting, and I've been working on it all weekend is um, our our organizations that are reaching out for um, very specific stress management workshops for their African-American employees and other people of color, because they realize that people are experiencing a lot of, um, anxiety, depression, anger, all the, you know, normal emotions that would come from what we're seeing and living through right now. And so, yeah, I'm really busy with that and trying to create, um, something specific for African American employees. And that's including, like I said, you know, large nonprofits as well as, um, the for-profit sector. So hospitals, tech companies, uh, you know, tiny groups of like eight. So it really, I can tell just by the demand and for other people, um, some of my colleagues, that this is a concern for organizations. And it's it's great that organizations are providing this resource. Um, I did something for um, Applied Materials, for example, and within a couple of hours, more than a couple hundred people signed up. And it was so popular that they put it as a COVID-19 resource on their website um, internally because it was so well-received. And I think people signing up says, I want this, right? Um, I even did work internally at USC for different departments. So yeah, I think organizations are realizing this and partly it's because employees are asking for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, you work with a lot of different organizations. Um, what are you hearing that the, that your clients are hearing from their employees about what they need right now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, um, mental health benefits are just so critical, but they are really table stakes. Um, so, from EAP to ongoing therapy, um, that's absolutely something that uh, that folks are wanting. But I think um, more and more, there are a lot of things that. Um, actually are sort of within any manager's realm uh, that that go a long way. So, for example, since most of us have been, um, you know, working from home recently, this notion of inclusive flexibility is really important. So, you know, flexible hours, um, having it be okay to bring your kids uh, to meetings, as a partner in a law firm that we work with did uh, recently. And this will look differently for everyone, um, but it's really You know, setting up those conversations with managers to have those one on one um, adaptations and and simply a genuine, how are you doing in these check ins? um, You know, similar to the Are You OK program that Genentech did, but really to build that culture of connection, especially as we aren't physically together. um, And then asking leadership to model those healthy behaviors too. You know, if managers and leaders are saying, you know, hey, um, you don't have to, you know, work all the time, or it's okay. But then, you know, you see them sending emails really late at night or on the weekends. Then that doesn't really uh, go a long way in terms of um, of modeling and, and setting that example for what really should be happening during this time.
0: Yeah, we One, get a Maybe if you don't yeah. mind, I just want to add uh, just to what uh, Kelly was just saying. Right? I think what's happened is it, it, it's it's unfortunate, but also great at the same time. It took a crisis. Um, because we're all forced to reexamine our routines and our workplace and also our relationships and our habits to bring this focus, which is great. And, and I think as you know, Kelly was just saying, uh, the, the idea is now you're seeing a person, not the portrait anymore. And before, before you could come to work, leave the personal and secret self at home. And now you are on a video, kids are screaming in the background or it's super quiet and there is a tension in the air. Colleagues can see one another in a more holistic way. And I think a lot of us are using this as an opportunity to start discussions versus run from them. So in many ways, it's 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 put a bigger light there. And also, you know, we're all experiencing in many ways a new fear and anxiety, and we're watching family and friends practice social distancing and all of that can be lonely and isolating. So the idea here is, you know, this is first principles in many ways, as a lot of us have to lead. Uh, from the top lead from, you know, lead from front in many ways and make sure you're demonstrating these behaviors and listening, as Kelly said, you know, you and asking genuinely, how are you doing and what's happening? uh, Because both our lives, personal and professional lives are all blended in. I think you need that even more now.
4: And and I agree, if I can add to that,
0: this is a, this is a great question.
4: Um, If I can add to that too, that, You know, for those of us that are really driven within our career, now we're finding ourselves being pulled to care for kids, care for parents. And if we hadn't planned on being a stay-at-home parent and we have young children, now we're really redefining our day. And so at the beginning of the year in January, when we set up our great goals and we focused on strategies and the difference that we're going to make through 2020, now we're midway through the year. And many of us haven't reached a, and come close to reaching any of those goals because we were juggling. And I think managers need to recognize, too, that we're feeling overwhelmed with not only the juggling, but in not being able to really thrive in our career and and be that person that was able to get the full commission, get the full bonus, um, always be on those calls, have stellar presentations, because we have kids popping around. and. And it's really redefining our day. And I think that if managers have a better understanding that that is, even if we're not calling it out, overall wearing on our mental health. Just putting in a word to say, I know that this is just tough across the board.
1: Yeah. i heard a story about a, a chief of staff to a CEO who, who the CEO said they had been, since COVID, um, started, they'd been starting all their leadership team meetings, doing a round robin, everyone talking about how they're doing. Just one word, to describe how you're doing. And the CEO asked his chief of staff, when can we stop that? Do you think it's like time to stop that? And luckily his chief of staff said, no, we'll never stop that now. Um, that's got to, mm-hmm. it has to be part of how we, how
3: we do business. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I just say, I do that. So it got, that's a very interesting point. So I was doing a one word check-in. Um, I teach social workers and, um, and they are, a lot of them are are in internships. So they're dealing with their own self-care and they're trying to care for other people. And a lot of that work is very limited when you're trying to do online because it's hard to counsel a seven-year-old um, online, right? It's just not the same as an adult. And so I started the one-word check-ins and, um, and I decided I'm going to keep them. So we just do them now students come into class, and I have found myself responding to where they're at, right? And I think it's it's a really interesting experience for me because if everybody says they're tired, in my head I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to try a strategy that is going to not wear down more on people and engage them more, and it's funny that it took me so long to do it, because my sister used to teach third graders in Atlanta, and kids who are really at high risk uh, a very poor um, school and she was trying to figure out you know what to do why the kids were all bouncing off the walls and I remember I told her as the social worker sister, you should do a check in and you know after that process, she started realizing she said, "I had no idea what was going on in these kids' lives, of course they're coming to school you know, upset, anxious, et cetera, because of that. And I think it's a really important, I like that, are you okay thing? Um, Actually, it was posted in my neighborhood here in Oakland. Somebody was posting them on um, on the polls, you know? And it just said, are you okay? On yellow paper and just stapled. And I think it's an important way for people to feel as if they can say, If they're not okay. Because I think most of us would ask people, How are you? And everybody just says fine and keep going. And I think that's shifted where people feel more comfortable saying, you know what, I'm not doing so great and have that conversation in a way that we never was it never was normalized
0: before. Yeah, it's okay to be not okay. Yes, exactly.
1: Well, and I like the way you switched that that question too, Ruth, because the the check-in, the one-word check-in. You feel it feels as if you're doing that for the other people in the room, but often you're doing it for yourself as a leader or as a person mm-hmm. facilitating that meeting as a teacher to get a sense of how you should shape the meeting, how mm-hmm. you should push your initiatives along. Right. It's it's invaluable information for you. Mm-hmm. It's not just generosity um, toward mm-hmm. others, although that that, of course, is important. Um, Guru, a question came up about leadership. Um, and you know, doing training at the leadership level, um, someone wrote in that they said they found a lack of awareness and training at that level, and that really there should be a focus on conflicts between managers and team members. I'm curious about how that training that you went through um, with Mindshare Partners changed how you all interact with the pe- with the people you manage.
0: You know, look, I think the first and foremost. the the beauty of these trainings, and I will tell you, there is so much ignorance in our life, right? I think it's um, even defining mental health, I think we were talking the other day, even defining what mental health means and giving a spectrum of that definition is first and foremost, it's first principles, right? Our mind is where everything starts as humans. So the training, I would say, really helped us level set what it really means uh, to be focused on mental health. And the second thing, what it forced, and it's important to force some of these behaviors as leaders was, we're going to talk about this on a weekly basis. What happens is if I do that at my staff meeting, which we do now every day, uh, given COVID, and we're maintaining that because we're, same thing, we're checking in every day, saying, how is everybody doing? And we talk through it. What happens is they're doing that with their leadership team. And I'm seeing a massive cascading. It's 11,000 people organization. So it's cascaded to the level, to every level. So the training was removing ignorance first place. It gave us tools. And then as a leader, I think you had to force that behavior, almost saying, hey, everybody needs to take this and do this every day. And I started that in my staff meeting. So it automatically became that everyone else was doing it. So so I would say it's it's not, and, and I think a lot of companies and leaders, I've talked to a lot of them, people overcomplicate this. It's not as complex. You have to first understand and, and define that this is core to who you are as a company. And as I've said, it's a good business decision. So this is not just about, you know, people may say, oh, I'm investing here, doing all of that. You will see the benefit. You know, if that's what people care about. I mean, I do it for many other reasons. So so I would say the training has benefited that way. And now we have done more. We are uh, one of the things we are. We, we actually announced it already. We are launching a mandatory training for everyone, all the employees, which needs to be completed by, it's like we go through a compliance training. It's the same thing. Uh, we did the same thing for unconscious bias training. It's similar to that on mental health, really letting people go through a training so that when you force that and we say, Hey, you ought to complete this, right? So it, it also brings that ignorance level to much lower level. the More people are doing that. So, so I would say it's, it's simple. Um, it removes ignorance and it really brings basic behavior shift that you can do on a daily basis and don't make it over complicated. And then I think you can go to the phase two as you start, uh, you know, scaling up.
1: Thank Deb, you, I want to ask you about um, the question came in about how to manage people working from home from a mental health perspective. And you were talking just a moment ago about, you know, so many of us are have not reached our goals, have not been able to do what we set out to do. Um, any advice for managers? What, how are you talking to managers at Genentech about how to give people the space they need, given everything going on, giving, you know, like you said, the competing demands between family and work, to what Ruth was talking about with the the trauma that many African Americans are experiencing, given um, you know the the deaths that, we, that we've all witnessed. How are you giving managers advice about how to you know give, give space for people to feel those emotions but
4: still keep working? Mm-hmm. So we certainly promote checking yourself first. Just like how Guru said, you know, he starts a staff meeting a certain way. Um, it's interesting because my daughter is starting driving lessons, and in the manual it says, you know, check yourself first, figure out what your mental health, your status is like before you get in that car. And I think it's the same really when you step into any meeting: is check yourself and and what is your current status? Because are you bringing um, burdens? Are you bringing anything from the last meeting or from an earlier meeting? What are you contributing, and that comes across, especially when you're just seeing uh, a square. When we're working virtually, we're also talking to managers about recognizing how focus on well-being and meeting people where they're at is so important. Um, even reflecting in the stats, you know, focusing on well-being will will produce double the productivity. Sometimes you have managers that need to hear that; they need to recognize that. Promoting connection within your team increases innovation and creativity. They wanna understand how that works because sometimes they're not always at that level to be able to share and say, I feel. We're transitioning our leaders away from always I think to I feel. And um, very proud of, of what some of our leadership has done in terms of every Friday, we have a, a virtual session with our um, Genentech Executive Committee And they will share how they're feeling and and how they're doing and how they're managing. And then they'll talk about how they're getting through that. And on every communication, every webinar, every site, we are promoting our EAP. And our leaders are able to talk about the service, um, regardless of whether or not they've used it themselves. So it's really embedding um, mental health conversations and explaining to people, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. They're not gonna be easy conversations, but stepping into that space builds that rapport and shows your authenticity um, and shows your employee, you're there for them. And I think that goes a long way. The, the I wanna just things, say- oh, oh,
0: Sorry, go ahead, go ahead.
3: Okay, I wanna just say that normalizing that is really, really important. Um, when I first started doing this work, actually I the first request I had was from a major bank. And what ended up happening is that they paid me kind of to go away because they weren't ready. And this was about six years ago. So this was a long time ago. Um, and they realized that there were issues with their managers in terms of interpersonal relationships. And they knew the data that said the number one reason people quit a job is because of their manager. Um, and at the same time, people tend to get promoted because of what they do well. And then they, they now had to manage people, which was not necessarily what they were hired for. And at one level, they were realizing that people were really stressed out. People were literally having heart attacks at their desk. But they had this culture of, you know, type A personalities. And so their argument was always, well, you know, well, we asked them to work 70 hours a week or 100 hours a week. And so how can we manage stress with that? And I kind of said, well, that's kind of, I'm just coming in to say things that are not the value of the company. And when it's the value of the company, then people feel that that's prioritized and that that is something that creates a culture that allows for people to perform at a high level while saying, hey, you know what, I need help versus don't ask for help. I will say that less than a year later, um, this organization actually made an announcement about work limits. So they had decided that people weren't going to work weekends if they weren't on an active deal, et cetera, et cetera. And I found it interesting because I was trying to push for that because I kept saying, well, there's no point in me coming in here saying do X, Y, Z if that is not rewarded in the culture. So I think it's really important what Genentech and Verizon are doing because it allows for employees to feel that this is important. Um, I've seen friends who've you know almost got fired from jobs where even though there were great EAP, it was, and this was Boeing, um, there was sort of a culture that you, know, you, you just plowed through because you're guys, you're engineers, et cetera, even though there was a lot of resources available. For this person and so i think once it's normalized then you won't get in in some ways you're preventing a lot more crisis and i think you're kind of saving money because you're intervening long before things fall apart. i would, uh, you wanted
1: to say something oh sorry kelly
2: that's okay go for it guru
0: no so I, I was just adding to what you know deborah was saying earlier i think in terms of tools and i feel like uh, you know, Ruth, you're talking about culture shift. I think as managers and leaders, one of the biggest things you're doing is you're really changing culture as a company, and you're bringing in these tools. A lot of these things we talk about. We do things like Wellness Friday, which really helps bring more, you know, remove ignorance, but also puts more light into how you perceive as an organization. That this is a clear business priority as well, uh, that we support kind of the well-being of our stakeholders and create a culture of health and productivity altogether. And and I, you know, many times, you you know, we've seen a lot of research, right? I think one of the research I've seen is like for every dollar put into scaled up treatment for common mental disorders, there is a $4 return Mm -hmm. on improved health and productivity, right? And you go down the, you know, segment, like if you think about millennials and Gen Zers or Black and Latinx kind of, you know, uh, survey responders that I've seen data, a lot of them are leaving because of, you know, mental health reasons, both voluntarily or involuntarily. And a lot of that comes to, again, What do you do at a culture level and what kind of tools you're using? And as I've said earlier, it's not complex. I think what Deborah was saying, a lot of the things that we do as leadership, talking about it openly really makes people feel that you care about it and you're bringing in good tools and you're going on the journey.
2: Absolutely. And I I think in terms of culture change on anything, it's both top down and bottom up, right? And so CEOs are the ultimate culture setters. And so I think it's amazing uh, what Guru has really been leading at Verizon Media. But at the same time, you know, grassroots efforts like those mental health employee resource groups are equally important, and then training up everyone to be able to navigate, you know, what have historically been uncomfortable conversations around mental health. Um, I think to ruth 's point about um, you know those just mentally unhealthy cultures, um, you know one of the things that we have actually advised we 're working with um, a few client services firms, including an international law firm, and they obviously can 't control client deadlines or court deadlines, but they can control internal deadlines and they 've realized that sometimes partners will implement overly aggressive internal deadlines. And that's something that they realize they do actually have control over. And so they're pulling back from some of those and trying to be more mindful of when something really is a fire drill versus when it can be pushed out uh, for the sake of a more mentally healthy culture.
4: And we've started to do something a little bit similar. It was interesting because on one of the Friday calls with the executive committee, a question came out um, around burnout. And so the committee answered the, the question, and then we thought, okay, you know, we're gonna move on. Sure enough, between that Friday call and the next Friday call, they did a ton of research on burnout, on what it is, on how it impacts the organization, what contributes to it. And what they did was they um, extended for the entire company, the July 4th, giving us July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd off as company holidays. But they also look to condense meetings. But th- because they found that when you're on campus, you have a meeting, and then even if it's a few minutes, you're walking to that next meeting. Um, but when you're virtual, you hang up and you um, call the next one, and you hang up and you call the and you literally don't even move. And so um, what we've started to do rolling out for the third quarter is to condense. So for 60 minute meetings, we're lit- limiting them to 50 minutes and 30 minutes down to 25. So at least it allows you to s- stretch a little bit of a bio break and to be able to just disconnect and check yourself before moving forward. So, you know, some of these seem and we talked about them being sort of quick fixes. But the fact that we're talking about burnout and looking to better understand it, I feel was a really quick uptick. And that's what I'd love to see managers doing is listening, engaging with your team so that when they're giving you certain red flags or trigger words, take them back and understand what they mean for the greater whole.
3: Yes. And I want to say that whole take a break thing is something that all the organizations that I've worked with, I have this little, I actually created it because people were like, well, you know, you're sitting for so long. And what we know is that actually your brain stops working at a certain point. And that's just developmentally, that has nothing to do with how genius you are. Your brain is just like, I'm done. I'm checked out. And so, you know, there's a reason that I always say therapists and classrooms, et cetera, use 50 minutes, right? And what do you do in the 10 minutes? How do you take a break? And I have a list of about 15 things that I put on this little you know, handout where it's, how do you just get up, walk around? And that's one of the things I will say, I've been online 100% for 70 years. And one of the first things that we all realized coming from a classroom where it's exactly that, you'd walk across campus, you do all these things, is we all put on weight. Like the first semester, you just put on weight because you're just sitting all the time. And you're right. People normally don't go from meeting to meeting to meeting, sitting in the same space, looking at a dot. (laughs) Because that's also the other thing is that you're not moving around. You're not, you're just, you're focusing on one dot. If not, you know, you look distracted and our attention spans just don't function that way. So I think there's a certain adaptability, but I also think just realizing meetings in general, um, there's, there's been a few articles I've been reading about how people are reconceptualizing what meetings are for, like what, like, what do you need to meet for versus what can be done or have a conversation without a meeting? Because people are getting so exhausted from, you know, just doomed after meeting, after meeting. And, Mm -hmm. and I think it's really important that we acknowledge that there's a shift, but also to acknowledge that there were things going on that we weren't acknowledging before, <laughs> you know, that people right. were feeling burnt out. I, I developed a compassion fatigue workshop because people asked me for it. I And burnout, same thing. Somebody came to me and they say, do you do burnout? I went and did the research. And, you know, WHO last year acknowledged burnout as a condition of the workplace. And that is actually shifting importance, because WHO then put out, you know, they created a website, all of these different things. And I think, again, once you have organizations recognizing that this is an issue, uh, retention goes up, right? If you're not burning out your employees, then now, you know, you keep people longer, they're more committed to their jobs, they feel, you know, they can take a break when they need to, etc. And that turnover, people don't realize, you know, I've worked with organizations, literally did not have the same employees they had five years before an entire team. I was only five years in existence, and I think the longest anybody had been there was two years. I'm like, of course you need a burnout workshop, you know?
1: (laughs) I want to read a comment from a viewer because I think it's very relevant to what we're talking about. Um, This person wrote in, I found that many organizations have a mission that supports dignity, integrity, health, and wellness, but the culture does not live it. It's hard hard to work on mental health. Culture trumps strategy any day. Um, Kelly, I'm curious... How with the various organizations you work with? How do you get people to do what Guru Ruth and Deborah are talking about, which is to walk the talk, not just have you know programs and trainings, but actually to change the way that fundamentally we work?
2: Absolutely. Well, um, behavior change isn't easy, and <laughs> it definitely takes some time, as we know well. Um, I mean, I think if you think about um, the diversity and inclusion movement broadly without mental health, um, but more focused on race and gender um, and LGBTQ rights, um, you know, I think in the last five to 10 years, that really has become ingrained in a lot of companies. And obviously, as we've, you know, seen in the last month or so, there's still much more work to do. But when you think about mental health in the workplace and the behavior change that's needed there, we're starting from the very opposite side of the spectrum. And so, you know, this is something that's really only come to fruition in the US, at least in the last few years. Um, And so we're very much at the beginning of our journey. And so I think, you know, unfortunately, it just takes time and patience. And it's a combination of all these everyday behaviors from managers, from C-level folks, um, really across the organizations that that add up over time and that really do shift the culture. So I think that, you know, trainings are an important stepping stone, but it really needs to just be repeated over time to to take shape.
1: I want to talk a little bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion because that, um, you know, you have often said, Kelly, that mental health is the next frontier of diversity inclusion. What do you mean by that, and how do mental health and DEI efforts intersect within the workplace?
2: Yeah, thank you for that. So um, it's really twofold. So the first is that mental health really is a new category of DEI in and of itself. So when we typically think about DEI in the workplace. It includes actively recruiting underrepresented employees as a first step. So when you think about uh, mental health as a category of DEI, it's really the flip side of that. So companies already have folks within with mental health challenges within their organizations, they just don't know who they are. So, you know, mental health... Um, challenges affect every team, every conference call, every company. So there's no escaping it. Um, and as Guru has mentioned, you know, emphasizing mental health at work really does enable those employees to be more productive, more engaged, and more included thinking about the diversity and inclusion piece. Um, you know, so increasingly we are seeing these mental health employee resource groups really bubble up and that's, that's incredibly new really within the last 18 months or so we've seen those, um, pop up under the umbrella of DEI within companies, often started by more junior employees. Um, And we've assembled a virtual community for ERG leaders across companies to learn from each other. Um, So that's that first part in mental health being its own piece of DEI. But then the second part um, is really that mental health affects different populations differently. So based on different cultural norms, different levels of stigma based on various communities, Um, and what the added challenges of being part of an underrepresented demographic in the workplace looks like. And so I think really coming at it through that intersectional lens of all the different pieces of someone's identity is so important to really bring to bear. Um, We did a study uh, also in partnership with SAP and Qualtrics in in 2019 of um, employees all over the country, and it showed that Almost half of Black and Latinx respondents had left a job, at least in part, for mental health reasons, compared to 32% of white respondents. And so, um, you know, it's, it's pretty clear along different dimensions that different communities are being affected differently and, um, you know, need to be uh, taken into account in in varying ways.
0: And I, what I would say, I think, to Kelly's point, you know, if you think about the current um Situation we are all in in a week after, you know, George Floyd's death. Uh, you know, you think about anxiety and depression among African Americans shot to higher rates than experienced by any other racial or ethnic group. With, I mean, I think the data I saw, 41% screening positive for at least one of these those symptoms. And data this is from data from uh, Census Bureau. And and the data shows that the recent unrest, in you know, demonstrations and debate that have taken is a disproportionate amount of emotional and mental toll as well on black communities. So when you start looking at that black communities in the U S have been disproportionately affected by number of COVID cases as well, right. Which had a major impact on mental health. So you start thinking about it, the DEI, the, the employees, at least at workplace who are, uh, you know, they get impacted more emotionally and, and mentally uh, in terms of productivity as well. So for that reason, I think underrepresented employees need to be supported even more now uh, than ever because there are many more things that are give, applying a much bigger multiplier effect as well.
3: And I do want to, can I just say something? Um, that also what's happening is that as because of the junction, right, what I'm also hearing is if you're, for example, if you're at a company and there's 200 employees, I'm just going to say a small company, and there are two Black people, right, what often happens in terms of mental health is that people feel the stress of, you know, representing their race or, I mean, I cannot tell you the amount of stories I've heard of people literally mixing up, not just the people at work, but a new a vendor comes in the building and somebody starts talking to them as if they're their colleague because they don't. they they just assume there was somebody else or, you know, there are all these situations that they find themselves in people who are the boss who walk into the meeting. I've had several friends, this happens to, and somebody's like, well, where's, where's the CEO of whatever or the managing director. And they say, it's me. And that person does not get acknowledged. So I think also that there was a baseline of that anyway. I mean, some companies have large numbers, so it's a lot less problematic, but if you're, the only one, if you're the only Asian woman or the only woman. I have friends who work in parts of finance that are all men. I have a friend that, I mean, I'm like, really? There are offices in 2020 on Wall Street, literally, that just have men in the building? And then you realize, and he would tell me some of the jokes. I'm like, of course, if a woman came into this place, You know, her mental health would be at risk just based on the sort of culture and the behavior that comes with it. And so he kept saying, why is it that we don't have any Black people here? We don't have any women here. I'm like, maybe you want to think about, you know, the culture of the organization or the culture of your team that makes it so difficult. And it's not that nobody's bright enough or nobody wants to work there, but why are they not in the room? You need to think about the culture and how supportive that is of people who may be different, look different. Um, in England, for example, it's around Muslims, right? So same sort of behavior, but people feel like, you know, there's a pub culture. I worked at a place in London where we went to the pub every Friday. Well, you know, if you're, if you don't drink alcohol, and you don't normally go to pubs, you are now excluding somebody, and you, didn't, you weren't thinking about it actively, but then they're not in on the jokes, they're not hanging out for the three hours on Friday evening. So I think that is also where DEI is coming in to recognize as well, that mental health is part of the DEI effort beyond just the, the resource groups, right? But how is our culture inclusive to support employees who might feel different for all kinds of reasons?
4: And I think too, beyond you know the internal purview for vendors we have all so many different vendors we should be pushing back on vendors to say what are you doing where is your focus how are you shifting and employers when we look at our metrics from the vendors I, I think so many times we quick and we quickly look and and we Look at gender, you know, let's separate one gender from another gender. Let's look at how we are separating, you know, one location from another location. We should also be looking at race and ethnicity. We should also be expanding and looking at, you know, tenure and and different generations because employers need to look at metrics and really hold our vendors accountable. To make sure, especially with EAPs, you want to understand when you look at your metrics around race and ethnicity, um, who is, you know, in aggregate numbers reaching out? How do we better support them in terms of their needs and meeting them where they're at instead of just aggregate, you know, total numbers across gender?
1: Yeah, that I mean, I've there's a DEI expert, um, Ruchika Tulshian, who helped me understand. She wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review about also looking at demographics not just on one category, so not just on race or gender, but intersecting categories. Because by looking at one category, you're basically really deprioritizing people who carry multiple identities. Um, and they're they're not able. You're not looking at how they are accessing services, how they're being served by initiatives. Um, you know, all of the things we're talking about are not reaching those groups if you don't look at look at those. Um, Guru, this reminds me of something you you mentioned that that you're really um, focused on solving the inputs rather than setting targets when it comes to mental health. Um, and I'm curious if you could you share what you mean by that?
0: Sure. You know, you know, if you take a step back, which even I've been saying now is like how you level set, how we think about mental health and mental health and well being, you know, is not in the bucket of nice to have or is an extra effort or extra thing that we do, right? So when you take that philosophy, we approach, and my whole team and our company, we approach it in the same way as we approach any business priority or a problem. Uh, that is through the lens of our four stakeholders that I mentioned, right, which is employees customers, society, and shareholders. In this structure, I always say employees and customers are really your inputs, right? Which is if you have um, healthy retained employees who are focused, who care about what they do, they take care of themselves, you have a healthy input, they're putting the effort in. And then the same thing, you focus with your customers, getting the right customers in, they're again a healthy input. The output of that is what you see as your numbers that it satisfies your shareholders. And the output of, of that is what you say, what you see in the society. So what does that mean? The first input out call is employees. That is if you can attract, retain, motivate and support employee base. That's important. And then when you think about customers in that view, which is can you create products with a, with a myopic focus on customers who, who will do well for society and our shareholders. So with that, that's why I say input, which which if you double click on employees, you said this is where the focus needs to be because if you don't have that core foundation employees, you can't create real change. And so my issue has always been in this output targets. You know, we we just, I'm not against it. I think companies and I've had leaders in the past who've said, oh, we want to be 50-50 on diversity. And and many times you end up doing shortcut methods which doesn't solve the core problem the core systemic issue in the society, you don't solve that. You, You can do, you can get through to the output because you set a target and you put this bold vision. I always believe you need to fix the fundamental core first principle level behaviors and the input that you put in. Once you do that, the great thing you see is you see amazing output. You'll see great numbers. So you start with the equation so that you can solve for the answer rather than starting the other way around. That's what I mean by input rather than output.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, and I think we hear a lot of the we've heard, especially in the past few weeks, about the real risk of just setting targets and trying to meet those targets. I think what you're talking about is a a nice way to try to solve the real underlying issues, not not just set quotas or targets. Um, We are quickly running out of time, and I have about a million more questions for y'all, but um, (laughs) let's um, make sure we all get a a final word. I, I presume that most of our viewers have have you know, chosen to watch this because they are interested in making change at their organization. So I'd love to hear from each of you, what's one thing that you can, that our viewers can do right now, regardless of the title or tenure at their company, to to make a difference in terms of um, culture change and removing stigma
3: at their organizations? And um, Ruth, we'll start with you. Well, I, I strongly believe that normalizing the conversation is really important so that people who need help um, don't feel as if they should not get help um, and that it is treated like any other illness. And I think for my own experience, I've had both where, you know, I said, well, if, if somebody had come back from cancer, they'd get so much support. Um, but if you come back from a mental health episode, there is not that support and people actually question your competence in a way that they wouldn't do for other people. And so I think if companies and individuals can engage in those conversations, push for the kinds of EAP that Debbie and Guru are talking about, um, where people feel as if they can access it without being in crisis, you know, I'm moving house, I'm going through a divorce, or I just got a, a promotion and I'm going to work more hours. What does this mean for my child care? Just being able to have those conversations and to have them normalized is just huge.
4: Yeah.
1: Deborah, what about you? What's one thing our viewers can do?
4: I would say if leaders could learn to be vulnerable and share their story. You know, I am originally from Canada. I moved to the U.S. about eight years ago, noticed a drastic difference um, between the two countries. And when I started, you know, sharing my story to Nentech. It was very powerful for me, not only in terms of offloading, but just sharing with people that, you know, as a leader, I've been through struggles and I have come out the other side. And recognizing that just many people you know are fighting a battle you know nothing about. So just be kind always. And sharing your story promotes others to share their story. And then you find that commonality. It's much more powerful than I ever thought it would be.
1: Yeah. Just to clarify, Deborah, in Canada, people are much more open about these issues. Yes. Yeah. In Canada,
4: it's it's um, acceptable to have your therapist on speed dial, just like you would your accountant or your medical provider. Um, and that's where we need to get to in the US.
1: Yeah, I agree. Guru, what about you? What advice do you have for our viewers? I-
0: you know, I, I would say, ask someone as a leader or anyone who's listening, ask someone how they're doing and, and truly, truly listen, really listen, and ask them again if you get the standard, and good, thanks, and you kind of, if, they, if you get the standard answer, I think it shows really that it's okay to be not okay. Uh, it's the easiest thing we can do as leaders to show that we are here, supportive, and ready to take in whatever comes next. And I would just add the other, sorry, one B to that, what uh, Deborah just said but start with yourself too. Ask yourself how you're doing, right? Wear your seatbelt first before you're helping somebody else. So that's what I would say everybody should ask uh, or do something.
1: Thanks, Guru. Kelly, last word.
2: Yeah, thank you. I agree with everything that's been said already. Um, I mean, we know that people won't take advantage of the mental health benefits that they do have if there's stigma. And so we really need that culture change to, to get at that. And the three most effective ways of doing that are social contact, peer support, and education, which is how we think about our, our three programs. Um, so for me, I have generalized anxiety disorder, which um, twice in my life has led to debilitating depression, um, resulting in a leave of absence at work that I now think could have been prevented if it weren't for my own self-stigma and just sort of stigma writ large. Um, and so I really founded Mindshare Partners to create those resources that I wish that I'd had when I was struggling and wish my managers and organization had had. And I think the irony is that living in the San Francisco Bay Area, the decision to do a startup uh, in a nonprofit space was actually far less scary than the decision to be open about my mental health challenges in doing so, uh, which is a high achiever, uh, I'd always kept very close to the vest uh, until that point for fear of uh, professional repercussions. And so just um, want to underscore the, the be vulnerable, even if it feels uncomfortable, especially if you're in a leadership position.
1: Great. Well, thank you all so much. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Like I said, I could really continue this conversation for about four more hours. Um, but I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us today, sharing their experiences and insight. A special thanks to Kelly Greenwood and Mindshare Partners for its partnership on today's program. Uh, reminder, I'm Amy Gallo, and this virtual Common Club program is officially adjourned.